following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Blessed us so richly in so many ways that you, the, the God of the universe, would pour out upon us every spiritual blessing in Christ. And not just every spiritual blessing, but you have blessed us with incredible material blessings as well. And so, our Father, we have much to be grateful for this morning. We pray that this morning as we look into your word and consider a difficult topic a struggle that many people in this room this morning and some who couldn't be here with us this morning are going through in their lives. That your people go through time after time as they grow and develop. We pray that you would open our eyes to see you. That we would understand just a glimpse of your purpose for us and your goodness and love demonstrated to us even in the midst of the hard times that seem to be such a source of struggle for us. So, Father, we pray that your Spirit would speak to us this morning. We pray that you would do your work in our midst and that we would go out encouraged and challenged to encourage one another as we look at what you have to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's an issue that people have struggled with since the fall. Perhaps more specifically, some of us are asking, or have had occasion to ask at least, why do bad things happen to us? Job's story was written to answer that question. Why do godly people suffer? It gives us a glimpse of God's perspective on this issue, but it goes beyond that. Not only does it give us a glimpse of God's perspective on the times of struggle and suffering in our lives, but it's as much a book about God and how he deals with his people as it is about suffering. Reveals him and his dealings with those who love him. It will also help us to learn what our attitude ought to be in the face of hard times. The book begins with a prologue in the first two chapters which explains the significance of the events. Every time I read this, I always lament that Job was never able to read these two chapters. Would have made life so much easier for him if he could have just read this to understand what was going on around him. Because it tells us at least one reason and gives us a glimpse, perhaps, of some others, 
why a just God is willing to allow the children that he loves to pass through such an incredible time of suffering as Job did. His circumstances are introduced to us in the first five verses. Verse 1 talks about his character. It tells us there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, before we really dig into this book this morning, I want you to observe very carefully that God says this about Job. When you hear Job say the things he says, going through the struggle he's going through, and you hear the comments his friends make about him, don't lose sight of what God says about Job. And as I've talked with people about this book, even in the last few weeks, I have been impressed with the fact that people somehow struggle with seeing Job the way God pictures him. But I think God has a better insight into Job's heart than I do. Well, I might be quick to say, how in the world could you ever say the kinds of things that Job says concerning God? God still says he didn't sin. And he still says that he is a man who was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. His character is depicted as spotless. A man who recognizes God's authority and submits to it. And as a result of that, God blesses him and prospers him. We read of his prosperity in an agricultural setting. We read of his prosperity in verses 2 and 3. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now bear in mind, this was a time when the East was the epitome of society. And Job tells us that he is the greatest of all the people of his day in that part of the country. He was prosperous. We get a glimpse into his family life. This is very early in Old Testament history in a patriarchal society where the father essentially functioned as the priest. And we read that he carried out that function carefully in verses 4 and 5. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And so Job's submission to God and his blessing by God extends to his family. 
He faithfully exercises the priestly functions that he as a father ought to exercise before God. That's the introduction, and then it goes on to tell us how his affliction develops. Job's faithfulness catches God's attention. But it not only catches God's attention, it also catches Satan's attention. In spiritual conflict between God and Satan, God presents Job as an example of a person who voluntarily submits to him. Notice verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? I sometimes question, how many times do you suppose God has said that about somebody? And I have two very mixed reactions to that. Because there's a sense in which I believe God does that with us. And much as was true of Job, he sets us up because if God recognizes that our life is glorifying him, enough that God would comment on it to Satan, Satan is going to be out to get us. Even as he was Job. On the other hand, how many of us would think that God would hold us up as that kind of an example when you consider how poor a job we do of manifesting that kind of character. And I'm not sure how many times God has raised that question. He didn't reveal that to me, and so I don't see that here. But nevertheless, he certainly did concerning Job, which brings on the heat from Satan. And there are two series of afflictions that take place in these first two chapters. The first one is the rest of chapter 1. Satan is out to get Job. Verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Do you follow what Satan is saying to God here? He's saying to God, logically, he's going to respond well to you. You are bribing him. Satan proposes in verse 11, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So God gives him permission. Verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Satan's attack comes in four waves. And we're not going to read the whole passage, but as you look at verse 13, we read, There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, to, and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Verse 16, while he was yet speaking, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans made a raid. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, another came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Wave after wave after wave after wave. Reminds me of the introduction to James 1 where James says, when you are bombarded by all kinds of affliction. That was Job's experience. In spite of losing his family, losing his wealth, Job still trusts God. Verse 22, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and wept. Oh, uh, fell on the ground and whined. They both start with W. He fell on the ground and what did he do? He worshipped. Is that how we respond? He fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Round two. Chapter 2. Following the first test, God again presents Job to Satan. Verse 3. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Satan has a response once again in verse 4. Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. He hasn't experienced personal pain. He's lost his family, he's lost his wealth, but he's still healthy and intact. So his proposition is, verse 5, stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And so God accepts the challenge and gives him permission again for a second test. Verse 6, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. The midst of all that he's going through, even his wife stops encouraging him. Verse 9, she says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I can't help but think that she might well be thinking it'll go a whole lot better for me. Verse 
Nevertheless, verse 10 tells us he remains committed to God. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The story of Job presents to us a clear example of the spiritual conflict going on in the universe around us. Though Job is never aware of the role he is playing in that conflict, he is nevertheless part of a larger conflict between God and Satan to determine whether those who claim to follow God will in fact remain true to him in the midst of the hard times. When Satan sees someone who faithfully submits to God's authority in his life, he sets out to destroy him. And yet in spite of Satan's best efforts, Job remains faithful. His story serves as a warning to all God's people of Satan's purpose, of his method of attack. If we are faithful to God, we can count on the fact that he is determined to destroy us. Job's faithfulness should serve as an example. Our faithful submission contributes to the whole picture of God's victory over Satan. We take part in that conflict. Following this introduction to the difficulty he's going through, Job's friends come to comfort him. And I believe they came with the right spirit. In fact, they started out really well. For seven days, they didn't open their mouths. Smartest thing they ever did. They say nothing. Then the huge bulk of the book deals with these three friends and their counsel to Job. Job begins the dialogue after they've been silent for seven days. Job speaks, and that stirs them to respond. Chapter 3 contains his lament. He begins protesting the fact that he was ever born. And then he goes on to say, if I had to be born, why couldn't I have died at birth? So I don't have to experience life's struggles. And then he goes on to complain, okay, so if I didn't die at birth, how about now? God has taken everything from him except death. And now that he wishes to die, that's denied to him. How much worse could it get? And then his friends start to talk and we find out how much worse it can get. Eliphaz 
is the first of the three to speak. And, and just in summary, we're not going to look at all they have to say. But in summary, we note that these three friends, each of them speaks in turn and Job responds to them. And each of them do this. They go through three cycles and each time it gets worse. They become more direct in their accusations and more severe in the things they say. But the fundamental principle is set out at the very beginning of their conversation. The testimony or the basic principle that Eliphaz comes up with, the law of compensation. Verse 7, Eliphaz says, remember, this is chapter 4, verse 7, excuse me. Remember who that, w- who that was innocent ever perished. Boy, can I answer that question. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. So his thesis is, innocent people don't perish, and you reap what you sow, and you are, you are reaping bad consequences, therefore the cause must be bad. If you're suffering... You must have done something bad. By the way, that idea didn't end with Job. I will never forget living through the days of the Guatemala earthquake in 1976. And as living in the country at the time, we went to different parts of the country helping people in distress who'd lost their homes and had nothing to eat. And as we were in one of those villages, uh, the people of the church there were talking to us and were telling us that one of their faithful elderly, elderly elders, one of their faithful elders, who everybody respected as a man of God, was pinned, as many of the people were, 22,000 were killed, Many of them were pinned by falling adobe blocks that pinned them in the dust that gathered, and they were suffocated. And this brother, who had been a leading elder in the church, was among those who were suffocated. And I'll never forget the dialogue that took place around that event. As people said, and here we thought he was such a godly man. And obviously, God knew something that we never discovered because he took him. Is that the best explanation we can come up with? I was impressed. I heard somebody thinking that way once again just last week, talking about somebody who was struggling, who was going through difficult times, and assuming that he must have done something bad. The length of this dialogue in the book, the majority of the book is given to this topic because this is one of the key things that Satan uses to destroy us. If the material, physical parts of it aren't bad enough, if the illness and the pain of the sores aren't enough, don't, 
don't worry about it. There will be plenty of others who will come along to add to it. And so it was with Job. Their criticism adds to the suffering. And Satan uses that attack to even cause Job himself to question his own integrity, though he continues to insist upon it because he's aware of nothing he has done. And yet he struggles with, maybe there is something. And appeals to God if there is to show it to him. Job is confused. He doesn't understand what's happening but he still trusts God. He continues to defend his integrity, but he can't figure it out. It doesn't make sense. So he questions. Chapter 7, verse 20. He asks God, Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? And basically his thought here is that in the past, as he's walked with this God, he has discovered that this is a forgiving God. A God who looks at the fact that we have fallen, that we have sinned, and forgives sin. So why isn't that working this time? What's happened? Why am I not experiencing the God that I have always known in the midst of this trouble. And yet his trust continues. Chapter 13 and verse 15, he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I like some of the other translations a little better. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. I'm willing to stand before God and let him show me where I have fallen short of what he desires for me. Well, there's a lot more in this dialogue that we could point to. But the one other thing I want to point to is that as they continue their attack and as it becomes more intense and more direct, Job comes to a conclusion. And it's like all of a sudden he has one of those aha moments. Yeah, the wicked don't always suffer. And he develops that theme as he says, well, 21, 79, they often prosper. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes Their houses are safe from fear. No rod of God is upon them. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. In peace they die. They don't always suffer. That's not true. And he realizes that his friends are working on a false assumption. And so he continues to insist on his faithfulness. And he continues to trust God, though he can't figure out what God is doing. Well, you go on through this story, and as you come to the end of this section, the three friends ultimately are silenced. They have nothing more to say. 
which arouses a fourth observer, Elihu, who speaks up. Elihu is a very interesting person and I believe frequently misunderstood. He's angry. And his basic thesis is that Job should be justifying God's actions rather than justifying his own. He speaks in four speeches, the first of which he talks about God's ways of teaching us, God's educational system. And he speaks to that complaint that while he's innocent, God is against him. Chapter 33, verse 9, you say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Part of what Job says in this section is that he is appealing to God and God isn't responding to him. Elihu responds, God answers, we just don't always get it. We don't always understand his answers. God isn't obligated to respond to us, and yet Elihu observes that he does. He answers us in various ways. Suffering is one of the ways that God speaks to us. And so rather than complain, Job should be seeking the lesson that God wants to teach him through his suffering. Another way God speaks is through a mediator. And Elihu proposes, I am the mediator. God has sent me to speak, to help you understand what God wants to teach you. So he speaks, and the second speech he delivers is what would be the proper reaction. He responds to Job's complaint that though he's innocent, God is not compensating him. The basic answer Elihu gives is, God can't be accused of acting unjustly. He's always just. Look at chapter 34, verse 10. Hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. God is always just in his dealings with man. His third message in chapter 35 is that Job, rather than complaining, should be seeking God. God wants us to seek him out of love for him. Job has said, I've been faithful and God hasn't rewarded me properly. And in this section, Elihu is saying, you shouldn't be out to get the benefits. You should be out to know God himself. Finally, his fourth speech deals with God's greatness in verses 36 and 37. 
And I want you to contemplate as I read several of these verses to you. Where else you hear the words that Elihu is going to speak in these verses? His first thesis concerning God's greatness is that God's wisdom is greater than ours. Chapter 37, verse 14. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. You know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Do you understand how God does the things he's done? Can you think of anywhere else you hear that? Hold on for a minute, we'll be back. He goes on to talk about God's power is greater. Chapter 37, verse 23. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not, abundant righteousness, He will not violate. Therefore, men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Now, what I want you to observe about Elihu's statements here is that at the end of the book, when God passes judgment on the three friends, he has nothing negative to say about Elihu. In fact, what I wanted you to see a moment ago is that God's answer to Job builds on the very statements that Elihu himself has made. Do you understand how God does the things he does? Then how can you respond to God for why he does what he does? He may not understand all that's involved, but he's got the right starting point. He comes at this issue from the right perspective. Job is concentrating on himself and on his afflictions, on the problems he is struggling with. He's focusing on those things. And Elihu says, you need a clearer view of God. And the rest of the book responds to that. For beginning with chapter 38, God reveals himself to Job. He uses a series of questions, and we don't have time to go through all the questions, but he uses a series of questions, first of all, to reveal the greatness of God's knowledge and Job's ignorance in comparison. How much greater God is than we are. So chapter 38, verse 3 begins, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. How far do you think that's going to go? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, don't you? If you're so smart. Job doesn't understand these basic facts. And, and as the questions go on, it talks about the earth, talks about the heavens, 
talks about uh, all that God has done. As he goes down through those questions, demonstrates that God's wisdom and knowledge is vastly superior to anything. And if Job doesn't understand these basic facts, how in the world does he ever hope to understand the eternal plan of God for our lives? So he challenges Job, chapter 40, verse 2. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Give me an answer, Job. Job responds, verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. After he sees a revelation of God and his greatness, He responds, he's already said too much. He's going to shut his mouth and let God do the talking. God gives him a second lesson, revealing his power, beginning in chapter 40, verse 6. And again, it's a series of questions to make Job aware of his smallness. And God's greatness. Verse 6. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Can you do that, Job? Job responds, chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is second of two or three places in Scripture where I'm reminded of of one who speaks to the Lord and quotes himself. And he says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Who dares to question God? Who's the person who does that? And he's talking about himself. And suddenly he realizes how inappropriate it is. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job gets the point. He recognizes God's greatness and his foolishness. He didn't understand what he's saying. From now on, he'll ask God and let God answer the question. So having come face to face with the God of the universe, the sovereign who created it and controls it all, 
He confesses his insignificance. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God settles the discussion. But please notice, he never answers the question. He settles it, but he never explains to Job what he's doing. When Job sees God as he is, he's no longer concerned about what he's doing. Which is exactly what Elihu said in the first place. You need to get your perspective, your focus set on God, not on yourself. I often hear people comment, I've probably heard it in this building in recent weeks. I hear it all the time. People saying, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about. You know what? I think when we get to heaven, we aren't going to need to ask God about anything. We aren't going to have to have an explanation. Because when we see God in all of His greatness and glory, when we see Him as He is, nothing else matters. And we don't need an explanation for our petty little concerns. And I realize if you're going through the struggle, it doesn't feel like a petty little concern. But from the perspective of the God of the universe who created it all and who even controls it all, our concerns are so insignificant. Not that he doesn't care. He cares immensely. But when we see him in his greatness, we're not going to care about an explanation. The book concludes with an epilogue. And briefly it tells us that the three friends are rebuked because they haven't understood God. They haven't understood His purposes. They put God in a box and they made God into a vengeful kind of a God who's sitting up in heaven with a lightning bolt in His hand ready to zap us if we step out of line. That's the kind of God they're serving. They fail to realize God's mercy. The other purposes that God has for us, even in the midst of the struggles. And so God says, I'm going to establish Job as a mediator. He's more righteous than you've ever thought about being. I'm going to allow him the privilege of mediating on your behalf. And he does, and God forgives them. The last part of chapter 42, Job is restored. He gets twice as much material blessing as he had ever received before. Relatives and friends return and and, uh, console him. His children are replaced by an equal number of children. 
And he's allowed to live another 140 years to enjoy the benefits. Now, if I were Job, I would not be asking for another 140 years. I have enough frustration with the ones he's already given me. But Job is restored and blessed in the end. Now, I want to go back quickly and I want to highlight six things we have already seen that apply to us in the midst of our struggles. The first is, and we're doomed if we ever forget it, the first is we are participants in spiritual conflict. To put it concisely, we're at war. Satan's going to do everything he can do to destroy us. And when we stand firm in the midst of his attacks and we are faithful, God wins. Second, God controls history even when we face the hard times. Go back to the Old Testament history of Israel over and over again, all the struggles Israel went through with all the pagan nations of the world. And God demonstrates that he is in control of the greatest pagan nations on the face of the earth. And the encouraging thing is that hasn't changed. However great and powerful and terrible those pagan nations may appear to us, however fear-inspiring they may be as we look at them, God still controls it all. And we can trust Him with that. You know, we make a horrible mistake. Our tendency is to think that God is losing when we suffer. God hasn't lost yet. A friend of mine used to say, you are not important enough that God would make His first mistake in you. God isn't going to lose. And in fact, James tells us God takes us through those times to make us into all that He desires us to become. Third, hope you've learned this. God has purposes for our lives that we don't understand. Job certainly didn't understand what was going on. And when we go through the hard times, we won't understand it either. But we can trust God's good purposes for our lives. Fourth, the problem of suffering is never solved by focusing on the problem. Get that? Concentrating on how much it hurts. Concentrating on what we're going through. Never resolves the problem. In a very real sense, it amplifies the problem. The problem of suffering is solved when we stop focusing on the problem and start focusing on God. And that's the fifth observation. The problem of suffering is solved when we focus on God. Finally, 
repeated theme throughout Scripture. Those who are faithful may not triumph today, but those who are faithful always triumph in the end. Go to the book of Daniel. It's the theme of the book. The faithful triumph in the end. When we come to the last chapter of the story, you look at the book of Revelation and how it all ends. We win. Well, actually, you look at how it all ends. God wins. But the good news is we win with Him. We participate in His victory. However bleak it may look today, those who are faithful always triumph in the end. And that includes us. Let's pray. Father, there are days when we wonder if Job even understood what we're going through. Until we really look closely at what Job went through. We don't comprehend it. We can't. But we are grateful for the confidence we have because of his story that there are forces at play here beyond anything we could ever imagine. That Satan is out to destroy us because you love us. Because you care about us. Father, we pray that as we face the hard times of life, that our focus would not be on the times, but they would be on you. And that seeing you, we would be satisfied. Father, we pray as people around us see how we respond to the hard times. They see what you're doing in our life and giving us the strength to face circumstances that we never thought we could face. As they see you do that in us, we pray, Father, that they will be attracted to the God who makes it all possible that they would be drawn to him. Lord, use us to that end for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.